Hello, everybody. Bradley here coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada in back to back weeks talking about Bridgerton. Didn't even have to take a multi month break between episodes this time. And my heart is warm because this is a review that has been given to this podcast, which you could also go leave reviews on wherever you can. Apple Podcasts, maybe Spotify. I don't know. But this one says great show. Five stars. Bradley, you are hilarious. I love the personal stories you incorporate into each episode. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Bertus do via Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that. We are here today, of course, continuing our deep dive into the first novel of the Bridgerton series, The Duke and I. Today we are taking on chapter 16, and boy oh boy, is it an absolute barn burner. I had a great time reading this one. As always, there will be adult content, so hide your kids. With regard to spoilers, though, I will not be spoiling past chapter 16 of this novel or any other books in the Bridgerton series because I have not read past this chapter in this novel or any of the other books. And with regard to the Netflix adaptation of the first couple of books, I have seen both seasons. I have podcasted about both seasons. When it is relevant to the story to compare and contrast the book to those seasons, I will. So I will not outright spoil the plots of those seasons of television. However, when it is appropriate, I will be referencing them, so if you would prefer to have absolutely no TV show, or TV show spoilers, I recommend going to watch the Netflix series first and then coming back here. And finally, before we get started, I just want to direct your attention to the show notes. There's a lot of cool stuff there. If you would like to email in and let me know what you think about this chapter of Bridgerton, it is letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com. Feel free to just let me know whatever your Bridgerton thoughts are so I can read them and feel happy. There is also a Patreon there. If you don't know what Patreon is, you can kind of, it's like a it's like a tip jar with bonus stuff, right? So if you're listening to this and you go, oh, I love this Bradley guy. I'd like to give him a few bucks a month, help him out a little bit. Uh, in addition to that, I can give you some stuff. If you would like early access to the podcast, that's an option. There's a tier in there as well where I have started watching Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. We will be podcasting about that once this book is finished. However, I watched it live for the first time and recorded myself doing that. I've put that on the Patreon, so that's there if you would like some bonus content in that way. So I just want to direct your attention to it. If not, though, I think we can just uh, hop into Chapter 16 of The Duke and I. We hilariously start this chapter with Lady Whistledown kind of riffing on climate change. It's kind of completely separate from the rest of the chapter. Uh, this chapter is all Simon, all Daphne, and just their interactions, which is awesome. And I really did enjoy this chapter. It was, uh, I think, a significant improvement on the last one. Um, but <laughs> Lady Whistledown is taking some time early on uh, to let us know that she hates the heat. It's hot in London and people aren't digging in. Lady Danbury's fucked off to her uh, country estate where there's a sea breeze or something. It's, it was just really funny. It's so disconnected from the rest of the chapter. And it's like one of the longer Lady Whistledown passages too. So she's basically telling us, hey folks, this is happening in the summer in case you forgot. And oh yeah, it's really hot outside. And so I just appreciate, I appreciate Penelope not having um, not having anything else to talk about other than this. I guess in the books, we haven't figured out it's Penelope yet. So maybe it'll be a different person in the books. But based on the show, I'm assuming it's Penelope Featherington, who's Lady Whistledown. And it's hot, and she wants to let everyone know. One of the cool things we did learn, though, uh, that I thought was interesting is she's kind of telling you how her spy network works, where she gets the information from. This is done in the show via just shots of Penelope kind of schmoozing around society, kind of in the background, you know, eavesdropping on conversations, that kind of thing. Here we find out if you're in London, you're on the radar. She's got you. She's got a network down. She's out and about and around. If you're outside of London, you fucking do whatever you want. She has no way of figuring it out. So she's kind of giving up the game a little bit. She's kind of let everyone know, hey, 
Once you cross the city limit into London, you are part of the tea. All right, we're spilling it, we're drinking it, we're making it, we're boiling the water, we're putting it over the bag, and that boiling water is going to hurt when it's boiling on you. But if you are outside the city limits of London, you can do whatever you want. Have multiple spouses, you can have sex with the butlers, you can do whatever you want, and I will not report it because I don't got spies. So that's where we are at with Lady Whistledown. We then spend the rest of the chapter with Simon and Daphne, which makes the whole Lady Whistledown bit absolute nonsense for this chapter, but that's okay. Uh, we start in Simon's head, and you might be thinking, what could possibly be going on in Simon's head? I'm sure it's intelligent and intellectual. I'm sure it is something we as the audience really need to know. It's going to surprise us. We're going to learn something new. Nope, Simon's fucking horned up and ready to bang. That's where he is at. Um, it's really funny because he has this moment, um, he has this moment where he's like, yesterday I had the best day of my life. I woke up and I walked over to my thing and I took my robe off and then I looked at my wife and we banged and it was a success. And today I will be successful too. And it's, so it's just very like, he's just horned up and ready to go. It's very primitive and it's just very funny that, that this man has been brought to his knees by his wife so easily. Wonderful. And like, it makes sense. Look, like, I get it. You didn't think this was going to happen for you. You didn't think you were going to end up in a loving marriage. Your wife is super attractive and you enjoy, and she enjoys it and you enjoy it. And you're just a free flowing, like sexual couple. And that's wonderful. And I get the appeal and I get why he's happy about it. It just feels very primitive and hilarious that his brain is just like, it's just like stuck. It's all knotted up and he can't untie it. And the only way to get any relief from how he feels is to have sex with Daphne. And so the whole chapter being framed in that way, I thought was very funny. It's also so hyperbolic. It is so hyperbolically hilarious. There are so many moments in this chapter where uh, Julia Quinn has decided instead of making Simon a multidimensional character with regard to his sexual urges we're gonna make it sound like he is on the verge of painful death every time the amount of times it just in this chapter never mind the one before and i'm sure what's coming next where it's like and then he looked upon daphne and the thought of her eyebrows made him fall to the ground and he thought he would have a heart attack and perish right there if it weren't for that if he perished right there, he could not sleep with Daphne this evening. And it's like every single thing and the way she moves and the way she looks and the dressing gown she's wearing, individual time sends him into an absolute fit that sounds like it's gonna result in a stroke in any moment. And so it's, it's just so funny that she keeps writing Simon in this way and it happens multiple times in the same paragraph. So that is my one comment to cover all of those times. It is not particularly well written. Um, I don't know what it does for Simon's character. I get that he's horned up and his wife's hot and the rest of it. However, since we're gonna skip past that, um, it is very funny. And this is me acknowledging how funny it is and how many times I laughed while reading it. When we are talking about Simon's character, though, I think out of all the things that kind of uh, make this hilarious to me, um, I have been blessed with the knowledge that this novel was inspired by Pride and Prejudice. Now, if you really love this book and are like, oh, I want to read the book that uh, inspired this, um, maybe don't because it might, um, it might ruin this book for you. Pride and Prejudice is an absolute masterpiece. And Bridgerton is a great book that serves a function and I'm having fun. And I think the moments 
where I notice it the most are in these Simon horned up moments. Later, we're going to get a lot of great characterization of Simon. But in Simon's like all horned up for his wife, going to fall and faint and die at every moment. It's just almost like exhausting. It's almost like Julia Quinn has no other tools in her arsenal to make this feel realistic. Like we as the reader have all felt desire. We've all felt passion. We've all, maybe not all of us, but like I have been in awesome relationships with people I find very attractive. And I understand what it's like to like wake up on a Sunday morning, you got nothing to do. You look over and you're like, oh, they're so attractive. This is awesome. And then you're like, oh, we're going to bang later. It's going to be great. Like, it's all relatable to a lot of people watching or listening, well, reading this book and listening to this podcast. So it's like, I don't, it just feels like a little juvenile when it, when it repeats itself so many times. And I think a stronger writer would have been able to add a little more intricacy to that in a way that Jane Austen, uh, I mean, I mean, the books are written in different times. Jane Austen is, is not going to write like this in any capacity, but yeah. So I think it's in these moments where I notice the holes of the novel the most. I'm like, oh, okay, Julia Quinn is not Jane Austen, actually. <laughs> it's kind of like if someone, I've, like, I, I'm sure Julia Quinn's a better writer than I am, for sure, 100%. However, if I wrote a book and said it was like inspired by Stephen King, you might be like, I'm sure it was inspired by Stephen King, and I'm probably going to read some scary shit that's kind of Stephen King-ish, but there's a low chance this book is better than what Stephen King can do. And it's the same kind of vibe here. Now that I've done five minutes on um, dunking on Julia Quinn for no reason, let's talk about what is awesome about this. Um, aside from Simon like having a stroke at any moment, um, what is going on here is Simon is enjoying falling into a routine, which I find fucking adorable. He's enjoying getting up every morning and going to his thing and checking whatever out, and then his wife's brushing his hair. And it's kind of like we have morning routines, and I grow to love my morning routines. You know, you get up, you moisturize, you make a coffee. You st- I live where I work. When I'm at home, it's a little different, but when I'm at work, I've got like a little porch that overlooks the ocean and I can kind of just look out there. It's beautiful and wonderful. And I get to hear the sound of the rain. I live in Vancouver, lots of rain. And so like, that's all beautiful. I like my morning routine. And so I get it. You fall into a routine and it's one of those things as a couple that's really nice, especially as a new couple. Like we've all, that honeymoon phase of the relationship is always so fun and so exciting. And part of that is falling into that routine and you don't even realize the parts of the routine that annoy you because you can't yet because you're just so in love and having so much fun with this with this person that appreciates you and is kind of mixing their life into yours and it's an exciting like um polymerization that's a Yu-Gi-Oh card but I'm going to go for it here. I don't know if that's a real word either. Anyways, doesn't matter. I'm a nerd. Cool. Um it's a it's a cool mix of lifestyles and and you know you're you're two people putting your lives together and that is romantic and cute and fun and I'm glad the duke also found that romantic and cute and fun. The dynamics certainly are dynamicking. One of the things that was kind of a a bit of tension in the last chapter was you had Mrs. Coulson tell Daphne about Simon's stuff, about the dad, about how much he was hated, about how much uh, Simon was forgotten, about the stutter, about the determination it took to get over that stutter, about how his father didn't really accept him even after that anyway. So you learned about all of Simon's stuff. And Simon does not know that Daphne knows this. And Simon intentionally did not tell Daphne this. Daphne is not great at this. She is staring at his mouth, which 
is fucking stupid. Like, why Daphne? I mean, I believe it of the character, so it's good writing. But, like, I believe that Daphne would have no idea what else to do but to be like, Durr, like, I'm just going to stare at his mouth because he used to have a stutter. She's kind of giving away the game a little bit. And then later, even more hilariously, she can't stare at his mouth directly, so she stares at his mouth through a mirror, <laughs> which is funny, too. And so the dynamics, though, were interesting because Simon is picking up that Daphne is doing something weird, but he is pretty certain that it's not about the stutter because, you know, uh, he has not told Daphne that, but he's kind of picking up that Mrs. Coulson might have, so he's asking her about Mrs. Coulson, and uh, I, I enjoyed this because this is the natural progression of the tension from the last chapter. It's like one chapter just perfectly needs into the next one, and you don't really know in this moment how Simon's going to feel about it. There's a reason why he didn't want Daphne to know this, I'm sure, right? And I'm sure it's a lot of shame and personal guilt, and you don't want to appear weak or whatever it is, right? Like, I'm sure he has his reasons for Daphne not knowing this, um, and you don't know how he's going to react. You don't know how Daphne's going to react. Like, right now, she's just staring at his jaw. We know how Daphne felt when she was talking to Mrs. Coulson about it. But now when she ends up in a conversation with the Duke about it, how is she going to feel? We don't know exactly. I kind of, you know, uh, buried the lead a little bit earlier when I went in on Julia Quinn and her writing of Simon's, uh, you know, libido. Uh, because I had written down a sentence to give you an example. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I put, this is so hyperbolic, it's bordering on insanity, which is true. However, one of the lines I wrote down, just one of the many, sometimes the need to touch her was so great it hurt to look at her. It's like, okay, Julia, we get it. Moving on. I don't want to dunk on Julia Quinn again. We're moving on. Um, they're having sex. Uh, you know, part of the morning routine that uh, the Duke was excited about was this, was that he was going to be successful. Yesterday, he woke up, he looked in the thing, he brushed the hair, they banged, and today he's going to do it again. They're having cute, adorable, fun sex. You know, they're doing the thing where, like, Daphne's on her back and both arms are above her head and he's holding the wrists together with one hand. And, you know, you all know the drill. We all understand what's happening here. Don't, pre don't pretend, you freaks, like you don't have any idea what's going on. This is why we read this shit. Come on now. And so they're doing cute fucking sex and they're having a good time but what's fun about this is where i still don't understand this book's perspective and i it's another maybe ding on julia quinn that i my brain just can't handle this they bounce between simon and daphne's perspective within the same chapter without a clear indication that we're changing perspectives this has been every chapter of this book i just haven't mentioned it every time it, it bothered me in the last chapter as well i just didn't mention it but in this one like we're with simon we're with simon we're with simon we're with simon and then as soon as they start having sex we're with daphne Daphne. But while we're with Daphne, it's fun because she's doing this. She's doing this with a new perspective of Simon because now she knows about the stutter and that he wasn't loved and all this. So she's coming at it and she's saying, she's like, you know what? Simon probably has never known what it's like to, to be loved and to just be deserving of love. And you know, yeah, this is probably true. Like, this is still a thing nowadays. Like, you can go and you just go tell a man that he's deserving of love in 2023. And he'll fucking cry. Like, that is real. That'll happen right now. Like, find anyone. I challenge you. Like, go find a man in your life and just say the phrase, you are deserving of love. No one has ever told them that. Like, this is a thing that's true now. Never mind then. And never mind that we know that not only does he not think he's deserving of love... He was actively, like, abused by his father in this. Like, neglected, I guess, is maybe the better word. Neglect is a type of abuse. Anyways, and so, yeah, like, this is this is really, you know, um, progressive from Daphne to have these thoughts. And she's kind of, you know, not trying to... She's trying to figure out how to 
let him know that she cares about him. So she starts going with like the I love you, like, oh, I just want to tell you I love you. And to Simon, that comes out of absolute nowhere, which, which is kind of funny, I guess. Right. And then Daphne's trying to backtrack. And then later she's like, you know, I'm just so proud of you. <laughs> and she's trying to let Simon know, like, Simon, I know. And you don't know that I know, but I want you to know that I love you and I'm proud of you and you deserve this love that I'm giving you. And it's just fucking awesome. It's so cool that we're not just getting another sex scene for the sake of the sex scene. We've learned something new about the characters. One of the characters has a new perspective on the other one. And it's like the book version of sex position. So how has this changed their relationship? And this interaction where Daphne's trying to figure out how to approach this with Simon in a way where she's not outright saying what's going on, but wants to let him know that he loves or she loves him and she's proud of him and all the rest was just wonderful. As the sex is ending, there's a lot of funny bits. There's a bit where Daphne uh, can't finish. She can't have an orgasm because she's worried about Simon. <laughs> like, she, she's so concerned with this I love you, I'm proud of you stuff. She's having trouble uh, reaching the climax, which is awesome. She eventually does, which is also great. We are pro... We are pro-female orgasms in real life and in Bridgerton. Like, anytime this happens, I'm going to bring it up because we just want to propagate that those are great and awesome and wonderful, and we love them. So that's where we're at. And we learned that she hears music, which is uh, super fun. Like, I don't know. I don't want anyone to tell me what their climaxes are like. It's a little weird. However, if you're listening to music, that's a great time. And it does make me curious, what kind of music are we listening to when we reach the top? Who fucking knows? <laughs> I don't know if it's anything I've personally dealt with, but maybe next time. Anyways, yeah, this was just super fun that Daphne... It's just, you know what? Maybe let's give some credit back to Julia Quinn here. The nuances of Daphne having an orgasm in this chapter were fucking hilarious. And so, you know what? This book rocks. Why am I even... This is... I, you know, sometimes I sit in front of this microphone. I'm like, what on earth is even happening? How did I end up here talking about this fucking series and this book? But here we are. And you know what? I'm happy that Daphne listens to music when she, when she reaches the peak, you know? The Duke is still all over the pull-out method as a way to stop Daphne from getting pregnant, which I suppose is the best you can do for the time, so I don't want to kind of, you know, I don't want to kind of take too many points off. He understands the mechanics of how it works, and I'm sure that that's the best you can do at the time. However, with the sheer amount that they're having sex. There is no way that this is going to permanently work forever. In this book, Daphne is like pretty young? Like 18 to 20, maybe? I think, you know, I think in the Regency era, they do a good job in the book and the show of making it clear. This is not 12 years old or whatever. This is like reasonable, like 18 to 20. Um, these are adults getting married, but just kind of newly adults, I think is what's going on here. Anyways, she's got a good 15 years of like healthy childbearing possibility left with another five of less healthy and potentially more dangerous after that maybe so we're talking like more than a decade at the very least of uh this having to work every single time so i don't know that this is going to permanently work but what simon does not take into account simon He's going in. The pull-out method's going to work. Let's assume for his sake that it's going to work forever. He has the game played. He is one. He is going to go on and have sex with Daphne 29 times a day, every day for the rest of his life. No kids. It's going to be awesome. He has not factored in 
the sleeper agent Mrs. Coulson <laughs> might have told Daphne how making babies works because this goes wrong very quickly. You know, un unreserved seventh round, seventh round draft pick in the explained sex to Daphne games. Mrs. Coulson, sleeper agent for the Bridgerton family, comes in and explains it to Daphne. And oh boy, this is gonna this is gonna blow a lid off the operation real quick. Before we get to Daphne's reaction, I cannot stress how funny this is. And the gag, we're adding more points to Julia Quinn. I taketh away from Julia Quinn, I added to Julia Quinn here. We are not unfair critics. The description of how Simon rearranges like the sleeping situation is fucking hilarious. So this guy, this guy is Simon. I'm assuming this is a big bed, right? Which is fair. This is a giant bed that would fit a bazillion people on it. So. This isn't as funny when you think about it that way, but I imagine it as a more cramped space for the hilarity. Uh, Simon, um, you, we could get a towel involved or something, but we don't. We, uh, we uh, when we do the pull-out method, we ejaculate straight onto the bed. <laughs> We're just going straight onto the bed sheets, which I suppose makes sense functionally. It's fine. Um, theoretically, he is, uh, pick a side, left or right, he is, you know, he's uh, finishing on one side of the bed, right? So one side of the bed has the giant spot in it where he's finished. He then like shuffles over top of it. So he is putting a barrier between himself, the the ejaculate and Daphne. So he's like the pillow barrier in between. So he has functionally made a huge portion of this bed unsleepable because of this every single time. And then they kind of like cuddle up together, huddled on one side to avoid having to sleep where he has finished, which is the funniest thing I have ever read in my entire life. I cannot stress how much I laughed out loud while reading that. We now get to Daphne's reaction to putting all the pieces together. And she is understandably furious. She has taken all of these you know, um, what's the word? All these separate pieces of information and put them all together that, you know, a womb won't quicken without strong seed. She has put together that the ejaculate is the seed and that she is the womb that would be made strong by it. So, hey, we're figuring this out. This is awesome. Would be cooler if everyone was just told how this worked. But, hey, that's not the word world we're living in in the book or the show of this series. Um, she is absolutely livid and she doesn't start with like a an honest like a little like you know sometimes when you poke the bear and you know you're about to get into a fight but you want to start with like a hey honey right you want to like trap them into it like hey honey how was your night out with your friends and they go oh good it's like i know you weren't with your friends i know you were seeing susan you know what i mean like you kind of trap them into it she's not starting there she's going all the way in and si this is happening in the middle of the night or the early morning. Anyway, Simon is just waking up, which is the worst time to start being, no matter how much it's your fault and no matter how much you deserve it, the worst time to start being yelled at is like, just as you're waking up, you're like, what is half? What are you? Oh, do we have to do this right now? Um, so Diamond's going off, or Diamond, <laughs> Daphne is going off and she is correct. She has been lied to. She has been betrayed. Uh, she is making the point in, in a lot of words, but she is making the point. It's like, you told me that you cannot have children. And what you meant to say was you will not have children. And we talked a lot about this in the show. The show in the book here is presenting this argument very similarly, where there's the difference between can't and won't. And in my opinion, those are 
colossally different things. Like the difference between Kent and Woe, they're almost opposites, right? Like him not being able to have children is sympathetic. It's it's heartbreaking. It's, you know, I will sacrifice my ability to not have a family because I love you as a person and it really sucks that you cannot have children. You will not have children. Now that's a fucking distinction I need to know. Now it's a personal thing. Like all the machinery is working properly. Now it's just in your head. Like you just don't want to. And so you won't. You know what I mean? It's like... It's like if I, in a, in a way less stakes, if my brother came to me tomorrow and was like, I have a hockey game tomorrow night. Will you come? And I, so I get, and I go, sorry, I cannot make it. You know what I mean? And my brother might assume that I had other engagements, that I would be at work living on my little island. I physically could not be there. You know what I mean? But then later when he finds out that I actually could have been there and I was just sitting here recording a Bridgerton podcast... Right, and the the real truth was that I would not go. Like, I could have. I could have got in my car, and I could have driven to the game, and I could have watched it. No problem. But I didn't want to. You know what I mean? So when you put it, when you lower the stakes and then analyze it that way, and then you go back to the heightened stakes, you realize how fucking awful um, Simon's argument is here. And then he, he's on the defensive. Most people in arguments are on the defensive. He's obviously the one that's wrong. Um, but he is going through like that. You agreed to this. You agreed to not having any children. And so we're not having any children. Like, what is the difference? Whether I don't want to or can't, like, what is the difference? You agreed to not having any kids to be with me. We're not having any kids. It's functionally the, he's arguing that it's like functionally the same thing because we end at the same point. And my argument is, and most probably most people reading this book's argument is, that is not how anything works. And Daphne was absolutely deceived in live too in a way that is really kind of reprehensible. During her kind of well-earned outburst, she is she is very effective in that she's self-deprecating. She's kind of going through it from Simon's perspective and kind of just taking shots along the way. And she's going like, yes, you, the Duke, stumbled upon this pretty little girl named, we'll call her Daphne. That fucking LOL. We're adding more points to Julia Quinn when Daphne was like, yes. And for the purposes of this story, we'll call the main character Daphne. It's like, oh, fucking yes, let's go. And you lie to Daphne's face, but you could lie to Daphne's face because you knew she was stupid. She was a stupid, stupid little girl who didn't understand how this stupid thing worked. And you could abuse that stupidity. And then, then, and then Simon was like, you're not stupid. And she's like, fine, ignorant. You found this ignorant, ignorant little girl and you could lie to her face because she was ignorant and wouldn't know any better. And then you could live the rest of your life. No, you know what I mean? Like she is so effective at this argument here. And then they start kind of moving this argument into the real reason, right? Now, Simon has to come clean. He doesn't fully come clean, um, but he comes clean insofar as Daphne uh, gets the opportunity to bring up the stuff with his dad and the stutter and the stammer and the rest of it. And Simon doesn't deny it. He kind of leans into it. So this is his chance. Um, I mean, he had, he could have just told Daphne at any time, so he's had many chances. But this is his opportunity in this fight um, for him to kind of add the context as to why the won't is important instead of the can't. And what he says is, um, my dad treated me like shit, which, true. Um, he didn't care about me as a person. He didn't care about anybody as a person. He only cared about the land. He only cared about the title. He only cared about Hastings. Very Tywin Lannister-esque in this way. Like, no one is an individual. It's all about the name and the legacy and the house and the good standing and, you know, propagating your line, all the rest of it. 
And I do not wish to be a part of that. Like, nothing would make me happier. Nothing would make me happier than to have this line end because I know how much he would hate that. He worked his entire life. The only thing he cared about was this thing, the line propagating. And now I can choose. I can choose simply by not having kids to do the thing that he would have hated the most. And I want to do that because he was so terrible to me. So his motivations makes sense it's not a good excuse at all for deceiving daphne in this way but what i like about it is that the character motivation matches up i think with the action right like i understand how how simon is feeling and how intensely he's feeling it and how deserving those feelings are would end up in this spot where he wants to spite his dad by not propagating this line um, Daphne's point in the, what she says in the chapter is like, but you're not him and you're fucking here and you can have kids. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And kind of the unsaid bit and the bit I think we're meant to fill in is this is so stupid. Like you're doing all this to spite a dead person, right? It's not because he thinks he would be a bad father. It's not because he doesn't have the resources to have kids. Although that wasn't a, I don't think that was a a consideration of this. And he has as many nannies and nurses and whatever that they need. Like they, they don't have to raise these kids themselves if they don't want to. It's not because he's traveling the whole world and won't be able to spend time with them. It's not because there's a war going on and he doesn't want his kids to get involved. You know what I mean? There's none of these actual things. It's just like a personal, I want to spite a dead person, which in 2023, when you're reading it, you're like, he's dead. He doesn't care. He's fucking dead. Like he, like you're getting revenge on a dead person. Like, good for you. You know what I mean? You're going to ruin Daphne's life to get, uh, you're going to lie and deceive your wife forever and ever and ever and withhold the one thing she truly wants just because you want to spite a dead person that she's never met that was mean to you. Like when you put it that way, it really sounds stupid. So yeah, this is the, the way this is written, the way this is staged, the arguments from both sides, like Daphne is right and we are meant to find Daphne right. However, that does not stop us from also understanding how Simon got to where he's got to and why he's doing what we, he's doing. Even if we disagree with what he's doing and think that he should not be doing it and think he should face repercussions for doing that, we understand how he got there and that's just good characterization and good writing and good storytelling. Uh, Julia Quinn, though, uh, Julia Quinn, we're, uh, I mean, I giveth and I taketh. This is, again, this is how we can tell that this is not um, Jane Austen in some parts. Uh, in the middle of this really passionate argument that I'm super into, like, this this stood out to me and I had to, like, stop reading because it was so, like, what the fuck are we inserting here? We are arguing. Simon and Daphne are in the throes, the, the middle of this kind of emotional climax of this chapter. And this argument that's been building the whole book, we have known... We've been in on the thing the whole time. It's dramatic irony. As the reader, we know that the machinery was working properly and that he was lying to her. We just didn't know when it was going to pop off. So now it's popped off and we're interested. And, you know, Daphne is saying, you know, she knows about the stutter. She knows about the stammer and all the rest. And then we take a minute in the middle of this argument for Julia Quinn to go, and ironically, stutter and stammer were two words that he didn't master. It's like, not now, Julia. Not now for your stutter or stammer-based jokes. Like, we are in the middle of this argument, and there's no way Simon would be thinking of this. You know, like, it's ridiculous. The whole, that was, it was a ridiculous line. It had no, it would have been a thousand percent better was that line not in there. I do not know how that passed an editor. It really took me out of the argument, and I was really into that argument. That's really unfortunate when a line does that. So I just wanted to point it out that I'm taking it away from Julia Quinn for that line. But hey, the beauty of this being subjective is maybe you love that line. Maybe you love that little bit of comedic, like, hey, ironically, stutter and stammer were two words he didn't master. It's like, not right now. We don't need that right now.
And then we kind of finish up and end this chapter. You know, I, I read this, you know, uh, earlier this morning. So the memory's fresh, but not perfectly fresh. Like I didn't just put the book down. And based on my notes here and based on my memory, we don't know what Daphne's going to do. She's kind of like marching out. This is not resolved in this chapter. We don't know how they are going to make it work. Are they going to come together? Are they going to stay apart? We obviously know based on the Bridgerton show roughly how this is going to go. But I don't know. Um, the mechanics of how we got here are slightly different, so I don't know for sure that this is exactly where we're going. And I swear to God, if they end up... What's the episode 9? Episode whatever in Bridgerton. I remember being actually livid at the title of the episode. It's like, standing in the rain or something. And then it's like literally just them standing in the rain at a ball. And it's like, oh, we're soaking wet and alone at a ball. Let's make up. And I remember being so mad. So if it's different in the books, I will be very, very happy. Um, but yeah, we're at the end here. Daphne deceived, lied to. Simon found out, did not expect Mrs. Coulson. Mrs. Coulson really did Simon dirty here. Not only did Mrs. Coulson tell Daphne about the ship, about the dad and the stutter and the stammer that he didn't want Daphne to know about, he, uh, she also told her about the seed in the womb, the quickening and all that stuff. So yeah, you know, Mrs. Coulson not exactly helping Simon out here. And sure, she's done it unintentionally, but hey, you know what? Sleeper agent Mrs. Coulson planned to the Bridgerton family, giving Daphne the info she needs. And let's see what Daphne does about this, because this this is a fair... If this creates a permanent chasm between them forever, that is fair. Like, this is that du duplicitous. This is that mean and upsetting and deceptive and unnecessary that I believe that Daphne would be absolutely livid about this forever. And so we'll see what she does about it. That'll be it for this episode, though. If you enjoyed it, feel free to write at letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com. Sorry, that's write to me at letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts about Bridgerton the show, Bridgerton the books, these chapters, the podcast, whatever you like. Uh, be sure to check out the Patreon if you want early access to these episodes, as well as uncut reactions to me watching Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. Those are all there. Uh, we have a Twitter and a Facebook group and the rest of that stuff as well. I will see you next week for chapter number 17. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll see you in the next one.